Well, let's pray together. Gracious Father, please uh, teach us now by your word. Um, please send your spirit to open our minds. Uh, and please um, open our eyes as well, that we would um, see those events of that first uh, Easter Sunday afresh. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may know that during the week it was the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the RAF, the Royal Australian Air Force. And... Oh, yeah. A few cheers. And to commemorate, uh, there were ceremonies uh, and celebrations held all over the place. The Queen even got out to one in her first post-COVID appearance without a mask. Um, she's been inoculated. In Canberra, there was a parade and there was a huge air show. My family WhatsApp uh, kept pinging with photos from my father-in-law who was there with my brother-in-law and my nephew. Um, a photo of F-18 Super Hornets flashing past, uh, then of roulettes in perfect formation. Um, apparently there was even a World War II Spitfire there on display. By all accounts, it was pretty spectacular, a worthy commemoration of the founding of the Air Force. It's important to commemorate significant events like that, isn't it? To remember foundational moments that have happened in our past, whether it be a personal thing or whether it's big national commemorations, moments that look back on our history help to remind us of who we are and where we have come from. Now, for many of us, that's Easter as well. It's a time when Christians commemorate. When we get together, I remember the particular events that took place outside the walls of Jerusalem that morning the 5th of April, AD 33, that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. But I want to suggest to you today, what I want to suggest to you today is that actually Easter ought to be more, than, uh, more to us than just a commemoration. But Easter, as we celebrate it, doesn't just remind us of an event that happened long ago. It's actually meant to awaken us to a whole new reality that we exist in now. And it's meant to affect us more than just in the space of a day. It should completely transform how we see the world, what we love, what decisions we make, and so on. According to the Bible, Jesus, uh, the event of Jesus' death and his resurrection has reshaped reality. The whole universe has become different because of it. And so it's not just something we remember. It's a truth that we need to align our lives to now. It's like the difference between remembering the day you won the lottery and actually enjoying the new wealth that you now have. And so today, we're looking in particular at the account of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospel of John. We've themed our Easter services, Victory at Last. Jesus' victory is especially emphasised in John's Gospel and if John's account of the crucifixion showed us victory achieved, well, his account of the resurrection shows us victory applied. It shows us the implications of Jesus' triumph on the cross. And in our passage today, we get three transformative encounters with the risen Jesus, where these implications begin to be unpacked. Uh, there's one, first of all, with John, the writer of this gospel. There's one with Mary Magdalene. And then there's one with the other disciples. 
So it'd be good to have your Bibles open if you've brought them along. John chapter 20 uh, to follow along with me as we look at these um, three encounters. So first of all, there's John's encounter, um, or perhaps more accurately put, his experience, given that he doesn't actually see the risen Jesus. Uh, This experience is recounted there in verses 1 to 10, where John refers to himself not by name, but as the one Jesus loved, or the other disciple, which is his custom right through his gospel. So the first John hears that something unusual has happened, is when Mary Magdalene arrives, verse 2, having run from the tomb and breathlessly she tells him and Peter, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. John and Peter hear this and they don't waste a second. They race to the tomb, no doubt their minds filled with questions. What about the seal? What about the guards? Could it even be that there's something supernatural going on here? No doubt they were utterly baffled at this point. Well, John arrives first. He looks in, but he stays outside. Peter, true to form, throws social convention out the window and he, when he arrives, runs straight into the tomb. John then follows and it's at that moment that with sudden intuition he perceives that the only explanation for what's happened is that Jesus has been risen from the dead. He saw and believed, it says at the end of verse 8. Now belief or trust It's a big word in John's Gospel. We saw this, um, if you were here, on Friday. John 3.16. Who is it who will not perish and will have eternal life? It's those who believe in the Son. John 6.29. The work of God is this, Jesus says, to believe in the one he has sent. And as there at the tomb that it's specifically belief in, the risen, in Jesus as the risen Messiah that John has. We know this because a little bit later on, in verse 31, John explains that the reason why he wrote his gospel was, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So that's what John believes. Jesus is alive now in the flesh. And so he rules as Messiah now. And the thing that's caused him to have this belief is what he saw. When he first arrived at the tomb, we're told that he bent over, he looked inside, and he saw some strips of linen, the grave clothes that had been around Jesus' body and his limbs. But then when he went in, he also saw the cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the description you get of that cloth in the second half of verse 7 is that it's still lying in its place, separate from the linen. It's meant to convey quite a neat and tidy scene. Other Bible translations say that it was folded up and in a place by itself. So the point is, it's when John sees the linen and the headcloth looking like this, that he realises this had nothing to do with grave robbers or the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities or whoever else may have been interested in Jesus' body. None of them would have left things in this fashion and so he's convinced Jesus has been raised to life. Now what's more, the linen and the headcloth also points to there being something different about Jesus' body. Later we'll see that Mary struggles to recognise him and that he's able to appear in a locked room. 
His resurrected body is still his body, yes. It still bears the scars, as we see in verse 20. And later on too, as he has a meal with his disciples, we see that it's also a physical body. It's a real body. It's Jesus' body. But also, it's a body of a different quality. It passes through things. It's an indestructible body. You might remember that Lazarus, when he was raised, came out still in his grave clothes. Well, Lazarus, though he was raised, he would later die again. But Jesus, he came through his grave clothes, now possessing a body indestructible and immortal. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that his resurrection body is the first fruit of the new creation. In other words, one day, everyone who believes will have bodies like his indestructible and immortal body. I, for one, can't wait to have a working right ear and a left knee that doesn't ache in the cold. But the big implication of John's experience here for us is the need for belief, for trust in Jesus as risen and ruling now. That's the most fundamental response required to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, it's worth asking yourself, if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, what's your answer to why the tomb was empty and the grave clothes were lying there? As the title of the old book said, says, this is evidence that demands a verdict. So that's John's encounter, bafflement to belief. What about Mary Magdalene's? Well, in verse 11, we find Mary back at the tomb, probably um, by the time she's returned there. Uh, Peter and John have come and gone, and she's weeping inconsolably. She assumes the body has been stolen, and for her, it's a double tragedy. The Lord has been taken from her both in his life and in his death. But as she leans down into the tomb to have a look, through her, her tears she sees not the grave clothes, but two angels in the tomb. Woman, why are you crying, they ask in verse 13. I don't think they really want an answer, they know the answer. Instead, this is a gentle correction. They're trying to lead her on to see what has happened. Uh, by the way, the word woman here is a polite word. Uh, though not quite a term of endearment, there's not quite an accurate translation for us in English. It certainly wasn't meant in a dismissive way, the way um, some Australians might use it. Well, Mary then answers with pretty much the same thing she had told Peter and John. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. But before they can respond, and interestingly, we don't hear any more of the angels uh, here in John's account... Mary turns to see someone else. It's Jesus that she sees, but she assumes it's the gardener. As we've seen, there was something different about Jesus' resurrection body, such also that he was often unrecognisable at first, not to mention the fact that she was looking through tears as she saw him then. Well, Jesus makes the same attempt at correction as the angels, verse 15, why are you crying? But then he also probes a little bit further, who is it you were looking for? Now, this is a question perhaps with both a surface meaning and a deeper meaning. For if she really knew who she was looking for, she would have known that, that there would have been no need for her tears. But she doesn't really answer the question. Instead, 
Hoping against hope, she ponders aloud whether he might know the whereabouts of Jesus' body. Well, it's at this moment that everything changes for Mary. She hears her name spoken, Mary, as she had always heard it on Jesus' lips. And in an instant, her blindness is removed. Anguish and, te- and, anguish and despair swallowed up by astonishment and delight. Teacher, she cries out. And probably at this moment, she falls to his feet and clings to him. What a moment. Not only has she found his body, but also, impossibly, she has found his body alive, very much alive. That double tragedy has been undone. And perhaps she now imagines that things can return to normal. Jesus and his disciples traveling the towns of Galilee and preaching the kingdom. The thought that we can now have him back as before is, I think, why she's clinging on to him at this point. But Jesus is not going to go along with this. He's quick to correct her for thinking that she could hold on to him here on earth. Do not hold on to me, he says, verse 17. Why the correction? For I have not yet ascended to the Father. So this is no time, Jesus is saying, for hugs and reminiscences about old times. There is something bigger going on. Jesus' resurrection is not just about him being alive again, as good as that is. It's also about him taking his rightful place on God's throne as ruler of the universe. And so he gives Mary a message here to take to the disciples, which she then faithfully delivers. He says, you need to tell them too that I'm on my way to the throne. That's interesting, I think, how quickly we often claim the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus for ourselves, that he defeated Satan and sin and death and brought us freedom and eternal life. But in doing so, we sometimes forget that the resurrection also established his lordship, that the Easter story is primarily about Jesus and not us. Perhaps that's a lesson we can learn from Jesus' words to Mary here. There's also one other significant thing for us to notice in this section, and that's the family language that is used in verse 17. I wonder if you noticed it as we read before. Go to my brothers, Jesus says. Tell them I am ascending to my father and your father. And this is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus has called the disciples brothers, friends. He's called them that before, but not brothers. And this is the first time that he's called God their father. Now, this is especially significant given how Jesus speaks of his heavenly father in John's gospel. Back in John 5, the Jewish religious leaders ramped up their plot to kill him because he had called God my father, thereby making himself equal with God. It was scandalous that Jesus would call God his father. But this is what he does. And now he says that we, his disciples, can have this scandalously close relationship with God as well. And so there's another implication of the resurrection. Because Jesus is risen... I can be part of God's family. Jesus is my big brother. I can know God intimately and be assured that he knows me intimately 
with the care of a perfect father. I hope today that each of you know God as your father in this way. And next we come to the third and final transformative encounter with the risen Jesus uh, there in verses 19 to 21. By now it's evening, the disciples are huddled together, uh, probably where to think of the ten of them, twelve minus Judas and Thomas, they're huddled together in a locked room, overcome by dread. The doors of the room are locked, we're told, because of fear of the Jewish leaders. So even though by now there's been the excitement of Mary's news and perhaps John's attempts to explain his belief, that doesn't change the fact that the religious leaders and the crowds who cried crucify might come after them next. But then suddenly, there Jesus stands before them all. It's not a vision, it's not a hologram, but it's the real risen Jesus, which the disciples themselves confirm when they witness his scars. The same transformed body that moved through the grave clothes and the tomb walls now moves into this locked room. And immediately, the disciples' dread gives way to delight. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, it says there in verse 20. As they laid their eyes on their friend who they had grieved and felt his touch, perhaps they even remembered Jesus' words for the night before he died, that the disciples would weep and mourn while the world rejoiced, but that their grief would turn to joy. I will see you again and you will rejoice, Jesus had said. Now such joy should not just be the mood of Jesus' resurrection simply because a dead friend is now alive, as, as incredible as that is. Joy should also now be the underlying mood of the entire Christian life. Paul names joy as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And the call to rejoice permeates much of the New Testament. And the reason why such joy is now possible is because the resurrection brings peace. Twice in the locked room, Jesus declares to, to the disciples, peace be with you. Now, it's true that this was a common greeting of the time, but the fact that Jesus repeats it points to something bigger going on here. Peace with God. Relationship where there used to be battle. That's what Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross has made possible. And when our relationship with God is restored, well, that brings a personal wholeness and healing because now we are living with the grain of the universe rather than against it, united with the author and sustainer of life as we were meant to be from the very beginning. And so this peace established by Jesus' resurrection means that now joy can be the underlying mood of the Christian life. We will all have our ups and downs, that's true, times of grief, times when we face opposition, seasons of depression. But now we can navigate it all knowing that most fundamentally we have peace and peace for eternity. We can know that any hardship we face now is only ever temporary. What's more though, this peace is too great a thing to keep to ourselves. And this is the final thing that Jesus um, does, uh, the final implication of his resurrection the final thing he does in this passage is Jesus appointing the apostles, the disciples, to a new role in the world. 
Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, Jesus says. Now that Jesus is risen, now that he's going back to the Father, he's going to carry out his work here on earth in a new way through his human ambassadors, of which we are the present generation, if you are someone who trusts Jesus as your Lord. His disciples, right down through history, right down to us today, are the ones who are to go out into the world sharing this powerful gospel message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus and of peace. That, I think, is the simple meaning um, of verses 21 to 23. And now there's, there's some tricky stuff uh, in these verses. Um, you've probably got questions about them if you were listening closely. For starters, what are we to make of the fact that Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not that this is some first edition of Pentecost, John's Pentecost, as some might say. No, this is a symbolic action that points to the coming of the Holy Spirit on believers later on, of the future empowerment to go out and share the gospel with the world that comes 50 days later. If, if you read the rest of John's gospel, um, this becomes very clear because Jesus says, it's not until I've ascended that I'll be sending uh, the Holy Spirit. Another tricky thing has to do with the power to forgive sins and withhold sins there in verse 23. Is Jesus here creating this special class of person who have taken on a God-like role for deciding who gets into heaven? Well, though, though that's how some may have taken it, the rest of the New Testament weighs against that. Elsewhere, it's very clear that the only way a person can, can receive forgiveness of sins is through faith in Jesus. And that God alone is the only one who can provide that forgiveness. The role of the disciples, uh, the role of the disciple in all of this is simply to bear this news to others. And with the preaching of the gospel, only two results can occur, either forgiveness or not. Probably the reason why Jesus phrases things in this slightly unusual way is to emphasise the unity that we have with God in His mission. What He's saying is that as any Christian shares the Gospel, God, by His Holy Spirit, will work through us to forgive others or to harden. Gospel sharing is God's work. We just have the privilege of coming along for the ride. So there's the three encounters. Two at the tomb, one in the room. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Uh, this account from John of the first Easter Sunday. It's hard to read it without ourselves somehow being drawn into it. For it's not just a story of something that happened long ago, you know, an ancient story to explain why we happen to have a four-day weekend. No, it's the story of the moment that changes the very fabric of the universe. It's an asteroid crashing down and redefining the conditions of life that it's only through trust in Jesus as the risen, ruling Lord that we can know God as our Father and truly enjoy peace now and eternity with Him, a peace that we now have the privilege of sharing with everyone. Well, let's pray. Gracious Father, we do um, thank You for the wonder, for the glorious news that Jesus is risen and that's not just some event that happened in the past, some long-distant thing we remember today, but that 
he is risen today, that he rules resurrected today. Father, we pray that you would kindle our trust in him. And Father, we pray that you would give us joy knowing that we have a sure and certain future, that we have this peace that is brought through the application of the cross to us. And we pray, Father, that you would empower us by your spirit to share this wonderful news with others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.